Hello and welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell. It used to be an unusual career choice and job, but now it seems the term entrepreneur is now mainstream and considered a normal job. With the rise of people choosing entrepreneurship as a career, today's show is going to find out what you need in your entrepreneurial toolkit to make it work. Taking Care of Business today is made possible by our great friends at the EVU Group, Australia's first multi-brand real estate network. Our first guest to kick off this fascinating show today is one of those exceptional entrepreneurs you've probably never heard of, unheralded, uncelebrated and unlikely, quietly going about the task of creating viable, thriving businesses out of thin air. Founder and Managing Director of Group Colleges Australia, Alan Manley shares his fascinating journey to success in his new book, The Unlikely Entrepreneur. Alan Manley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jackie. Good, good to have you here. Now, my first question, uh, was really obvious that popped in my brain was why are you unlikely? Well, I, I think I'm a lot, I'm like a lot of entrepreneurs, the, the unsung heroes. I'm most of a hero, but unlikely. <laughs> Usually the geographies you read of entrepreneurs is that they were really smart. They were gifted. They were talented. Their parents encouraged them to go into business or their uncle did or something like that. And when I read those books that you do, I kept thinking to myself, well, none of those are me. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> none of those. And I, was, I matched none of it. And also it occurred to me when uh, I wrote the book that I was certainly in the, uh, the last half of my life well and truly, so I wasn't even young. And uh, I sort of made a, made a success of an entrepreneurial enterprise when I was 50 plus, so that takes away the, the bright young internet gifted genius opportunity, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I suppose it depends which way you look at it now. Was that the group Colleges Australia? Was that what you're talking about? That's right, yes, yes, that was, uh, that was, that was the, uh, the inspiration that got me into it, that's exactly right. So just tell us a little bit, what is Group Colleges Australia? Well, the, the concept was that I was from the computer industry and I was very interested in workflows, in, in uh, procedures and how you could automate things and make things more efficient. Now, that, uh, that burning desire continued on. And I ended up having shares in a computer programming college and I observed that the teaching costs were pretty fixed, the rent was pretty fixed, et cetera, et cetera. But the real opportunity was to use computers in administration. So with that thought, I, I set up group colleges so that we would manage colleges that we owned. We ended up owning about five colleges, and we made margin, made them profitable for the owners by managing them as a group. And therefore, you had a head office that was very, very computerized, far more than our competitors. So that, that became the interesting part. And then the end result of a uh, 20-year journey, it's been 20 years this year, that we now have an MBA college that has an em- a, uh, emphasis on entrepreneurs. Okay. And we have an MBA, MBA college giving out uh, MBAs for entrepreneurs as the end cycle of it. Congratulations, 20 years. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful achievement. Really great. Well done. Well, sudden, yeah, sudden success after 20 years. Yes, right. always. They, they, <laughs> there's no such thing as an overnight success, really, is there? <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly haven't met one, yeah, and I'm no. certainly not one 
not. I haven't either. Now, Alan, your new book, The Unlikely Entrepreneur, is this your first book? No, it's my second book. And what uh, was your it, first book? The first book was uh, nothing to do with being an entrepreneur thought of. It was called When There Are Too Many Lawyers, There Is No Justice. And uh, along the life's journey, I ended up entangled with a, a vexatious litigant. Mm. And I learned all about vexatious litigants whilst I was trying to run a business. And uh, it was devastating, and it took uh, 10 years. And uh, along my journey, along the journey that uh, entered into poverty, that I ran out of money and I ran out of jobs and ran out of business, that I ended up representing myself in court. And that journey took me from the local court in North Sydney uh, all through district court, Supreme Court, federal court, and uh, two appearances at the high court. And uh, there was 250 appearances approximately and 32 different cases. And I won. And I was a wreck at the end of it. So I wrote a book probably for therapeutic reasons. Everyone I told about my story pleaded with me to write a book. So I think that was them trying to say, we've heard enough, go away. And so I wrote a book, and then the most interesting part of the book wasn't my law story. <laughs> it wasn't. They all said, you should write a book about your business. It's far more interesting. Oh, So I, uh, when we got the approval for the MBA for entrepreneurs, I thought that was sort of a bit of a natural fit. So I re- retold the story instead of looking at it from the disappointments of the court system that tied me up for 10 years. I talked about the opportunism and the uh, excitement of being a successful entrepreneur, be it, that I had 10 years of uh, total distraction and lost an awful lot of business opportunities in those 10 years. It's a wonderful story, Alan, and it's uh, very generous of you to, to share that because I think it's there's sort of a lot, lots of morals behind there, but I really like the message of sometimes when you're absolutely at your lowest bit, and you're, you know, there's super hard lessons to learn. But you've used that and from that then inspired you to then write this Unlikely Entrepreneur and I suppose it's inspired you to do lots of other different things as well. And I think it's great for anyone to to learn from from someone like yourself that's been through such an extraordinary experience. Well, I hope they enjoyed the book. It's it's not a uh, lecture. It's written uh, as it happened and uh, with a bit of humour, I hope, so that uh, it's not, not a heavy read. And people have read it. I get uh, I get emails quite consistently, and it's available in all the bookshops, and it's available online. Anyone online got it? It seems seems to be quite popular online. So there we'll, you are. We'll put a link to our Facebook page. But one of our uh, one of the questions I had from uh, looking at it is, uh, you said about breaking rules of business. You broke a lot of rules in business. So I just wanted to: what sort of rules in business are worth breaking? Oh well, <laughs> the. Um, my favourite one is the bash. It's quite quite trendy at the moment, the bash bank. But um, I I found that when you're setting up, everyone just looks down at you. Now you're you're not a success. You're you're only a, aspiring, and that that sort of you know they know you'll fail. And statistics are perhaps on their side. But uh, when whenever the banks would tell me what to do, I'd almost do the opposite. But they they would say don't do that. Well, the reason they work for a bank is because they don't want to take a risk. That's why they call bankers. Mm. And then you would uh, read quite a lot on on textbooks on how to run a business. Well, the person who wrote it may or may not have run a business. And that's, so I, I then started to become a bit more individualistic. And uh, with with uh, the very conservative education industry we're in, they do things that everything is modelled on the universities. If the university...
volunteers do it, that must be the best way. And with administration, they're incredibly inefficient in my mind. So we, we did the back office completely different. We ran it like a commercial enterprise. We also ran the interaction with the, with the customer. We call them customer students. And we put it out as student service. And it was all about being customers. So we found that we, uh, in a recent survey, government survey of institutions, we're amongst the best in Australia for student engagement because we treat students like customers. Whereas if you went to a university, they would tell you exactly how to treat a student. But I don't know if their students are actually customers who are buying education from you. Yes, I, I, I actually agree with that. Now, when you're doing, you've, now you've, as you mentioned, through the group Colleges Australia, you've uh, started an MBA for entrepreneurs. Yep. So just uh, in a nutshell, Alan, and I know there'll be many qualities, but what are the core qualities that you think are necessary for someone to be an entrepreneur? Sounds really corny. They've got to have a dream. They, you, can, you can do all sorts of things. I've done public speaking on it. I've talked overseas about it, different cultures, and you sort of get through. You can tell when you're getting the message, is, do you have a dream? Do you really want, would you like to do something a bit different to the average, to the normal, to the normal opportunities would, that would be there for a person? Would you like to do something different? <laughs> and quite often they express that by saying, I'd like to work for myself or do my own something. And, and uh, in your industry, having your own show is an individuality too because the, the platform is there anyway. You don't have to own the platform to actually be different. Yeah. They want to do something different. And there's, um, I guess they're, they're, they're aspiring. Now, if we can get them to have a bit of faith in their dream or that they could, and, of course, you in your introduction, you very rightly said it's become far more popular to work for yourself or do something, and part of that is the adaption of technology where you can work a bit from home and you can go out and visit customers and go back home, you don't need an office, that sort of thing. So there's a really good opportunity for people to do their own thing, dare I say. It sounds really corny, doesn't it? No, it, it, it doesn't sound corny. It was interesting in prep for today, and I'm glad that you, you picked that up because I was thinking to myself, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years ago, if someone described themselves as an entrepreneur, they may as well have said used car salesman. There was a real perception of it was a bit shady and a unpredictable and risky and, and things where now it's, it's become mainstream and, and, People are describing themselves quite confidently and, and very calmly as an entrepreneur. Well, there's been a bit of a change in work too. The other, the other thing that's happened is lots and lots of females, there are the not sexist, lots of females are now setting up businesses and succeeding. If you look at the stats, women are more likely to succeed in setting up a business than men. And, it, and it's, a, it's a sizable difference. I, I dare quote that I was saying it's 10, 15% more likely they'll succeed. Women go into service businesses. They go into businesses that don't require massive capital. They require some, but not massive. Whereas traditionally, men would buy a truck or something that was capital intensive. Mm. So women are, women are, if there's lots of girls out there doing it, it becomes more socially acceptable, I believe. And they're also more in your face. Do I make an observation as, a, as an older man? They're more in your face and they're proud of what they do. Because quite often, uh, a plumber won't call himself an entrepreneur. Even if he's employing four or five people, he'll call himself a plumber. Whereas really, if you're setting up a business and employing others and taking risks, he is an entrepreneur. And quite often, they don't realise it's actually their families that are their support network, yeah, the, their, their we, partners and such. The women are, are particularly good at networking, and part of that is you know, sharing their story. 
uh, and that that helps them, I think, with their entrepreneur. They're probably a bit more aware of their personal brand as well. But look, there's a, there's another hour discussion, Alan Manley, and I would love to have it. But unfortunately, times against us. Those that uh, want to know more about Alan's story, which is absolutely fascinating, each chapter is bookended with insightful business tips. The unlikely entrepreneurs, an essential read for those who have ever dreamed of creating a business empire from scratch. Alan Manley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jackie. Been a pleasure. It has. It has. Certainly has. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. This is a show worth eavesdropping on as we talk about what bits in your toolkit you need to be an entrepreneur. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. We are getting this party started today. We are talking about what what bits in your toolkit that you need to be an entrepreneur. And our next guest is working in the event space. So she's she's used to parties and she's created the Mornington Peninsula. So this is in our backyard here. First beer, wine and cider festival called the Peninsula Vine Hop Festival. And I'd like to welcome Lisa McGregor. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. I like the way you describe yourself as a homebrew mum. <laughs> How have you been um, homebrewing beer, have you? Uh, yeah, it's been a couple of years in the making. Yeah, um, what, made so, you, what made you do that, start um, to do that? I'm a pretty keen craft beer drinker. Okay. Um, and I think we sort of got to a point where myself and my husband thought this might be a bit of fun to, to have a crack and, and do it ourselves. So, yeah. yeah, that process started a couple of years ago and we've been trying to refine it since. We're still probably not of the calibre where we could sell what we make, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun hobby to do. I was do. going to ask you that because particularly down here on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, and those listening um, from interstate or overseas, uh, the Mornington Peninsula are about you know an hour, an hour and a half uh, from Melbourne, so it's not far. It's on the coast. It's really pretty. You should Google and look it up because that, that's why we live here, because it is a, a stunning place. And I know there's a lot of breweries, but popping up um, yeah. down down here. So is that something that has inspired you or is that something you think you might do down the track? Oh, you know, that, that would be a pipe dream down the track. But to be honest, I don't know whether we'd ever be able to compete with some of the, the brilliant brands and products that are already down here. Yeah, right. um, I'm, you know, as I say, a real craft beer girl. I've come from the beer industry. So, um, you know, a few years back I was working for Carlton United Breweries um, in their event sponsorship team and primarily looking after um, you know, brand events and experiential events. And, and that got me really keen and really excited about beer. And so I like what's happening down here on the peninsula. I think we live, as you say, in an amazing part of the world and, and the volume of brilliant craft breweries that are popping up down here is, a, I think, something to get really excited about. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to put on the festival to be able to showcase what we are doing down here and bring people into the brand homes. Okay, so let's just go back a bit. I'm just going to go back in time. I noticed you've got a background in AV. You did an audiovisual yeah, correct. Study or yeah. was it a d- yeah. degree or yeah. something? Yeah, with RMIT. Right. And then you've moved into the event space. Mm-hmm. So obviously AVs used a lot in events. So were you is I, I sort of was I was trying to sort of fill the gaps in my brain. So I'm going to ask you rather than make it up in my mind. Sure. How did you take the leap from AV into events? So I think at the time when I left school there wasn't really an event management course per se. Mm. It was a really evolving, developing industry. And so um, my, I guess, way of approaching that was to learn the technical aspects for events. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was sort of in the technical production space. So going in um, and, and studying audiovisual. Um, from there, I was really fortunate and I landed a job um, at the Grand Hyatt. And at the Grand Hyatt, I was primarily um, you know, as a tech, initially setting up all the gear for the large corporate functions and things. At the time too, you know, 
the Grand Hyatt was was a pretty high caliber venue. It sort of dropped off the wayside a little bit these yeah, days. And a but, really great training ground. Yeah, I know absolutely. a lot of uh, friends and colleagues of mine who started with the Hyatt Group, and their training was extraordinary. So it's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, it was it was good grounding for me, and mm-hmm. and a lot of the the events there were sort of up to about eight hundred people in their main ballroom space. So yeah. decent size events. It made me, I guess, understand some of the various aspects of events outside of audiovisual in that space as well, because all the departments worked so closely together. Yeah. So you were more back of house. Yeah, and then initially. you've gone, you know what, I might try. I understand how back of house works now. I might try front of house. Was yeah. that sort of what was going through your mind? Yeah, I think sort of what happened was uh, by the time I'd, I'd finished up at RMIT, I was working at the time at Grand Hyatt, um, and they actually moved me across into an AV sales role, um, I think. They saw that I was the sort of person that liked to have a chat and that I was was good with the clients rather than necessarily needing to be that technician or yeah, that back I, of house tech. You can see that really um, clearly. So that's yeah. Good. So from that, there, I, I moved into an AV sales role, and, and I was really just working with the clients to understand what the technical requirements for their events were, and then from there, developing their quote um, and basically ensuring that we delivered on on what had been agreed upon. So yeah, I was lucky that gave me um, some insight to I guess more of the admin side of events, and that gave me then scope to to move across more into event management rather okay. than just technical production. Fast forward now. We're Fast forwarding through your career to the Vine Hop Festival. Yes. Now, you started last year, was your first year. Yep. Why did you start it? Um, It had been an idea that had been playing on my mind for a really long time. Where did it come from? Where did the idea spark? Um, Where was the spark? Probably about 10 years ago, maybe even more now, we started going to the Rutherglen Winery Walkabout. Okay. Um, a brilliant concept. Yeah. Um, and that's ran by their winemakers association up there that basically, um, is a multi-venue wine festival where you can jump on a bus and visit a bunch of different wineries right throughout that region. And we started to go there every year, you know, for, for a good 10 years, we, we did that. Um, and as my skills in more of the, the festival space, developed, I realized very quickly that most of the wine regions were doing something like this and the peninsula wasn't. And over that time, as you said before, the craft brewery industry has gone nuts down here. And with my passion being, I guess, more in the beer space than the wine space, it made me realize that there was a big gap in the market down here and that I would have scope to be able to run a a beer wine festival. And as I started looking at that, we thought, right, let's let's see if we can can throw cider in the mix as well. Yep, there's some brilliant craft cideries happening down here yeah, too. Yeah. And so that's sort of what the brainchild of the event was, that we thought, right, this region's not doing it, and this region actually has some additional assets that a lot of the other regions don't have. So, um, you know, from there I started putting together a business to plan, plan and, and worked out whether it was possible. And, yeah, that's, that's where like, it started. I like to hear that you did a business plan. So in the prep for your first one... What were some of the, the unexpected things that you came across that you'd wish someone had told you about? Oh, yeah, there was a world of them. <laughs> I think, you know, anyone um, when you first start a new yeah. project or when you first launch into business, you'll, you'll end up with those. Um, Tell us, what were they? Um, I guess with, with planning was a big one, um, uh, with the planning department at the Shire. Mm. Um, and so whilst... I was pretty confident that we had all of the permits that we required for year one and we'd engaged with them and the um, the tourism uh, board down here as well. Um, about a month out before the event, I had a call from the planning department saying, hey, we look like we've got some c- concerns with some of your permits. Um, and so it was 
it was great that I had their support and that they were able to help work through some of the concerns. But uh, had I done it again and had I had I looked at that process perhaps in a little bit more detail, I would have arranged the time to actually sit in front of the planners, you know, 12 months yeah, out yeah. and present them with the idea as opposed to it just being a series of emails back and forth through the planning process. Right. Um, and I was fortunate that I had their support um, and that we were able to make it work year one. But yeah, in hindsight, I probably would have approached that task differently. But there's a good lesson in there about identifying your key stakeholders and getting relationships yeah, with them very early. So when there is a little, uh, you know, chink in the in the road or you know bend in the road then you've already got that relationship with and you can work with them yeah that's exactly right to sort having that support network around you and identifying who those people are is you know is critical to, Mm. to making it work and I guess the other one um that you know is a really good lesson for me is that um the uh, the state government offers some brilliant grants for events um and that's through visit victoria and I applied for the Visit Victoria grant uh, my first year and I, I had the letter of support from the, the tourism board and in my head I was pretty confident that I was going in thinking, yeah, you know, I've got this great concept and I know that the board supports it and I know that the Shire supports it um, and I've got a brilliant team of venues that really want to get behind this. I've got this grant. I've got it in the bag. I didn't have it in the bag. Oh. I didn't get the grant the first year. Oh. Um, they basically came back to me and Visit Victoria suggested, yes, we think you've got a great concept, but we want to see some hard facts. We want to see your visitation from year one. We want to see what sort of feedback you've had after the first year, and then we'll come back and we'll revisit it year two. So I guess, you know, learnings from that, you haven't got it in the bag until you've got it in the bag. Mm. Wait until you've got the money in the bank before before you, I guess, you you start working with that that pool of cash because if you don't have it, you don't have it. Oh, that, 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 I love that. And thank you for sharing that. A lot of people find it hard to say, okay, look, I mucked up here, but this is what I learned from it. But I think that's the key to success. If you can actually share that knowledge, firstly, identify it yourself to go, okay, these are the things I did and these are the things I wouldn't do again or these are the things that are room for improvement. I think that is a real key to success for an entrepreneurial type person. Now, how do you describe yourself as an entrepreneur? No, no. Oh, and I think when I was put forward for this interview, yeah. I thought that's really funny. Am I a fraud? Am I pretending to be something that I'm not? No, not at all. So I think, how do you describe yourself? Oh, you know, probably a mum trying to have a crack at running a business. Um, that's probably that's probably not a great way to describe myself. But yeah, I think, you know, until such time that I'm really confident that this festival is, is successful, um, and that it can, can be, you know, a, a breadwinning option for me, um, you know, until such time that, that we get to that point, then, you know, I think for now, my husband likes to call it an expensive hobby. Um, you know, it, it does occupy most of my time and, um, and I think, we're close to it being successful this year, um, but until such time, for now, it's, yeah, I guess really just an expensive hobby. What was interesting, uh, Alan Manley, who was the first guest on today, and I asked him a question about what do you think is absolutely necessary, uh, uh, a necessary quality for an entrepreneur, and he answered really simply, he said to have a dream. 
So you've you've sort of got that. So you sort of you know you might not be comfortable with it yet, but just sailing around the edge of it. But you've certainly got the mindset. You might not describe yourself as an entrepreneur, but I I think you've got that mindset. Now you're in year two, and you got the the grant from the government. Yeah, Congratulations! Correct. So that that take a little bit of pressure off you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it was more um not even not even the cash injection. It's more that endorsement um to have a state government body that says yeah we think you've got a cool concept and we want to support it. That's that's a step in the right direction for me. If I can, if I can, just even get their support verbally, then then that's a really big help to know that um, that that they endorse the idea. Yeah, that's great too. It's good for, for confidence yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are you going to do in this year's event that's different from last year? Um, so we've got, I guess, a, a few extra venues coming on board this year as well. Um, we've removed this self-drive option um, and we've we've packaged together all of the tickets so that basically a festival ticket includes your bus. Um, so it's basically an automatic and then from there um, there's a couple of different bus options that you can take to be able to get you from one venue to the next. So be that a shuttle bus that's um, basically a hop-on, hop-off service or um, be it a, a scheduled tour where you're on a set time and a set route. Um, but we think with some of those extra bus options that should um, make it a little bit easier for, for the patrons to choose their ticket option and, and go about their day. And we've also introduced an app as well, which is really exciting. So um, the shuttle bus app will enable the patrons at the venues to be able to see the whereabouts of the next bus um, so they can choose to whether, whether they have another drink or whether they're ready to jump on the bus and, um, and, and stand there and wait at the bus stop ready to get on it for the next stop. Yeah, integrating techs is a really yeah. good thing. Uh, Lisa McGregor, please keep in touch. I'd like to support uh, Thank you. these events and people like yourself I think good good on you you go for it <laughs> Thank great you. great great you've certainly you've certainly got the support of of me and and my show so please keep us keep us uh, posted oh, on Thank events you. and we'll put a link to our Facebook page as well Brilliant. That's uh, letting letting people know so because people can come as you went up to Rutherglen you know people can come from anywhere to come to this festival yeah we'd love them to and there's the so Vine many accommodations Hop, there is yeah the Peninsula Vine Hop Festival Lisa McGregor thank you so much Fantastic. for sharing your story uh, look wish you continued success and look forward to our next encounter that's lovely you're Thanks listening to great to have you here you're listening to Taking Care of Business right here on Artable PFM we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. We are talking about what you need in your entrepreneur's toolkit. And our third guest today came on the show about eight months ago. He has disrupted the delivery industry and that song was called The Delivery Man and he is the delivery man, Marshall Hughes, always delivering. Welcome back. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to have you here. So eight months on, I looked, I thought, well, how long ago did I have you on? Because I like to keep track of people like you, particularly startups that are doing lots of things and, and it's moving so fast. So once upon a time, eight months, not a lot changed, but eight months in your industry is a, a long time and I've been keeping an eye on you and you've been doing lots of things. And let's just talk about what it is you do. It's, uh, you've launched a crowdsourced delivery service. Well, it's funny you should mention that because we changed, we've stopped using the word crowdsource. Oh, have you? What do you use now? So now Parcel is a service where shoppers deliver to shoppers. Yes, yes. And the reason we dropped the word crowdsourced is because it was causing confusion because people usually go, that sounds like Uber. Yeah, and, and it's fact, a very internal, jargony type word. It is very buzzwordy. So yeah. we're actually, what triggered it is we're applying for a tender for Belfast and Dublin and we just saw the word crowdsourced appear too much. And in fact, the crowdsourced career company Uber 
or Uber Rush is actually closing down on June 30, 2018 because the business model doesn't work. So we're distancing ourselves from the crowdsourced buzzword and jargon. Smart. I think that's very interesting. Our parcel, P-A-S-S-E-L, what pa- does that mean? Parcel is a collective noun for people. And there it's also go. how Australians say parcel. So parcel. We sort of like it. And our people who do our deliveries for us are called parsers. Parsers. I like that as well. So when we, when we chatted uh, eight months ago, you had just launched, which was a crowdsource, but not anymore. So even that, I love that, that you're continually evolving, you're testing what's working, what isn't working. And you had, I think, a handful of retailers on board, and you've got a lot more. Re- How many retailers you got on board now? Well, so when we launched, we were actually in beta mode with two retailers. Mm. We ran that up to March or April, and uh, we launched in April with those two, and now we're up to nine active. We're in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Geelong, and in Mornington. Um, we've got nine. We've got a pipeline of ready to start of so about another nine. We launched in Adelaide on June 29. That's so exciting. Which is a week away from today, so it is very exciting. So when you conquer all the capital cities in Australia, I'm assuming that's part of the growth plan? Well, the growth plan is to go where the customers... So our customers are the retailers, so we're going where they're asking us to go. Um, so the obvious next step for us is Perth, because people in Perth feel a lot of pain with e-commerce, mm. and they're waiting five to seven days to get things. So we are in discussions with people in Perth. But there is a chance we might be in Dublin and Belfast before Perth, so we'll see what happens. Now, I, I couldn't uh, ignore that little side thing about the tender, and I was, you've, you've preempted my question. Uh, what's going on there? So the problem that we're solving is a global problem in that people in most cultures are waiting too long. And so retailers are losing sales because when people are shopping online, they're being told they have to wait too long or pay too much. And it's a global issue for retailers. And in markets where companies like Amazon are embedded and have been going for a while, the retailers are really feeling the pain. Um, so somewhere like the Europe, the UK, US are key markets for us. Also, there's a lot more people. Um, yes. And there's a lot of more dense people. So through some connections, we got invited to a tender, which we're submitting on. We actually, we'll submit it this afternoon um, and we'll see what happens. But it's a startup. We're half a chance not to get in, but we don't care. We'll just go and try something else. So this is this mindset. Have you always thought like that? Have I always thought that if it doesn't matter, that there's little risk? Yeah, just no. like just sort of that no. there's a brick wall, find a way around it. So has that been something that you've worked on improving or is that something that's developed as you've got older? How does that, what do you think? So the risk is about, so risk is about the consequences of failure. So the consequence of failure for Parcel right now is very low because it's just me and my co-founder. So do we want to change, do we want to drop the word crowdsource? Sure. And we do that in a weekend. Uh, previously, when I ran a company with 25 employees, the risk of failure was that people would lose their jobs. Um, and that's a much bigger risk. And this is a part of the difference between when does a startup stop being a startup? Um, and it's essentially when the fear of failure stops innovation and stops uh, risk taking. So right now, we're, we'll, we'll try anything. Um, we're doing cheese in Brisbane, for example. Uh, and we didn't think we would do food. But Emile Solange, which is the fromagerie in Brisbane, she packages the cheese really well. So we can, we can do that. So let's try it because it'll either work or it won't. Um, yeah, it's, but it's a different mindset. It's a different mindset. I don't know if in the future I've got 150 people working for us. That might be a different mindset that then. Might be interesting. And that's the beauty of it that you can be so nimble that you can make decisions very quickly. Uh, 
and yeah, move really quickly, which is part of the startup. Yeah, so that's a good question. When do you stop being a startup? When do you become a fully fledged business? There is a, there's actually a discussion going around the startup community at the moment about how do you define a startup mm. and no one can agree on that. Mm. And I think it really comes back to being a mindset. Um, that people talk about Amazon still has a, a startup culture and that they will try anything because there is no fear of failure within the business. Um, uh, I, I think it's one of the founders of Atlassian has said that the, um, a company stops being a startup when they put a locker on the stationary cupboard. Mm. Um, I think it really comes down to a mindset though. When do you stop? You mentioned, you said before that we're disrupting. We don't see ourselves as a disruptor. We see ourselves as enabling local retailers to compete in a global market. Um, so I think it's when you change your mindset from being someone who wants to do something and doesn't fear failure. Yeah. So I don't know. Hopefully we never do. I think language is really important and you mentioned culture and I think that's the core or the foundation of it. So you can still have a startup mentality or a startup culture and then you go, well, what does that mean? Now, if that's giving you positive and proactive values yeah. that your staff are responding to or using the word disruption means different things for different people. Some people like that because they like the rebel side of it where others don't like it for, for whatever reason. But it's And it's classic, almost branding 101, where a word has so many associations attached to it. It's about going, well, do I, do I want that association? Do I want that image? So where do I actually want to sort of figure out where our culture is? Now, speaking of culture, you don't have offices per se. You still work out of a co-working space in Frankston. Yeah, so both Julian, who's my co-founder, and mm. I both work out of different co-working spaces. So he's based in the CBD, um, where his family is, and I'm in Frankston at a co-working space. Um, so we have this concept of we work where we are rather than having to create an artificial environment that says this is the office. And I think talking about culture, that's something we'd like to continue. We have this sort of concept of um, people when they will work for us will choose where they want to work, but we'll have debriefing and cocktails on a Tuesday night in the city and a beer and a barbecue in Frankston on a Friday. It's a sort of culture we want to enable that it doesn't matter where you are, you're still part of the team. Um, but the co-working space for me has been, I wouldn't be talking to you if I wasn't in a co-working space. Um, what has it done for you? It's the, the first thing it does is if you're alone or in a very small team, it puts you into a bigger environment where other people are working. Um, I sit next to a guy called Brad and he works really, really hard. And if I'm sitting there and I suddenly get distracted and start, you know, thumbing around LinkedIn or something and I see the Brad there working, it's like, oh, what, what the hell am I doing? Or um, the Pajama Foundation, which is a charity that looks after children in foster care. They sit across from me and it's um, Jama and Shannon and they're always working. And there's, the only motive for them is that they're doing good. So why aren't I working when I'm trying to build this business? And I find that really, really good. I'm um, also meeting yeah. people. I'm, I'm sure we met, you and I met through co through connections, through the co We certainly space. did, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it, so it's, it's been good for me. I, I've got five kids. I can't work from home. Yeah. It, that's not an option. But even if you did, it sounds like even if you could work from home, I don't think it would probably go in line with your personality type. I think that your um, understanding how you work and what motivates you and what drives you, so you're working with yourself, not against yourself. I think that's that's smart. I'm, I'm a little bit extroverted, but I'm no, also no. just a little. <laughs> I am very shy. Yeah. Uh, it's just you and I talking, no one's listening, uh, no, no, we'd no be fine. But I often say that if it wasn't for the co-working space, I'd be level 100 on World of Warcraft and destitute. Um, whereas now, because of the co-working space, I've got a startup 
we're, and we're not destitute yet. So, but um, yeah, it's it's been really really good for me. So yeah, it's a, it's a great story. So I love I love sharing that, like you know, extracting that from people like yourself. So those that are thinking about starting a startup or starting a business. Uh, whether they're an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter, but maybe starting a business, they've just started a business. What are some of the items in the toolkit that you think are absolutely essential? So I don't do advice, um, but and I think everyone's circumstance is different. So I think the first thing that someone, they need a really good BS detector mm. because whenever anyone does give advice or, or an opinion, it's always coming from an established the things they already know, the things they already feel. And so, they're, and they're pushing those things onto you. And one of the best bits of advice I was given was to ignore 50% of the advice I'm given, including that advice, mm. which makes it really challenging. I think, I, I don't know from it, I think what an entrepreneur or a, a business person or everyone needs is to be really confident in who they are. Um, and it doesn't matter if everyone thinks you're wrong. That's, that doesn't matter. If you think you're right, then you've got to be able to um, go with that. Um, and you know, and it's, I guess that's a little bit wishy-washy, but that sort of sense of confidence, that sense of self is really, I think is critical. Um, I don't think it's wishy-washy. And for someone who declares he doesn't give advice, I think that's the best bit of advice that anyone starting their own business could be is, is really having that sense of self and sense of purpose. And what Alan Manley said in the interview earlier about having a dream and moving forward with that and being so focused on that and, you know, not always listening to those around you because most people will give you advice based on from their own perspective, which would be security, risk adverse, oh, be careful of this, be careful of that, worry. You know, it's it's coming from a very secure place and starting your own business isn't a, a secure thing to do. So it's about actually, I suppose, cherry picking where you actually get that from. Yeah, it really is. And I guess and what almost contradicts that is you have to be really willing to ask for and listen to advice. Mm. Um, and it's – so I'm 45 and I started this when I was 43 and obviously, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I know everything now. Um, and the amazing amount of things that I've been wrong about in the last 18 months. Um, and you have to be prepared to sit down with people and say, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand how this part of what we're doing works. Um we come back to the definition of a startup. Essentially, it's an experiment in business, mm. um, which is another definition we were given. So we're experimenting. We experiment every single time we get another delivery, every single time someone signs up. We've got 2,400 people have signed up to be passers around Australia. And every single one of those sign-up processes is an experiment. Um, and so you've got to be willing to listen. We ask our passers when we offer them a job why they didn't do it. You've got to be prepared to listen and prepared to keep asking. For, I know I don't give advice. That's probably... Yeah, advice so you... I would get is to listen. <laughs> Ask questions and listen is really important. Oh, the, I think I think that is key, and also to keep asking till you understand it, and that's linked to confidence. Because I know I can ask a question, and if someone gives me the answer, and I'm still I'm thinking to myself, I don't I don't get it. I still don't get it. It's having the confidence. I'm really sorry, but can you explain that again? I don't get it, and keep asking until you get it. Yeah. But that shows confidence because most people will ask once and they go, I really don't get it, but I'm a bit embarrassed or I feel like an idiot or I feel like I'm stupid if I don't, if I have to ask them again to explain it. Yeah, I think if, if someone really, really wants to succeed and believe in what they're doing, they've got to be prepared to take it, like to get feedback, to yeah. ask questions, to listen to what people say, to, to take that because unless you are the smartest person who ever lived, 
and can do everything on your own? I don't know. It's, you've just got to be able to ask questions. Oh, I get, that's impossible. You know, and it, sometimes it's really, you know, sometimes the, the feedback you get is really negative. And uh, you know, we've been pitching for investment. We've raised $195,000, but I've been knocked back so many more times. And I take everyone like a kick in the guts. Of course. You just have to dust yourself off, yeah. get up and get back on it again. But you've yeah. got to figure out what ways for you to also lick your wound, have some time to do that and what that ever, however that looks like to you and then go, right, come on, let's go, let's get back on. So this is another reason the co-founding space is really good because mm. all those the people in there are my friends and they're not, they're not living the same life I'm living. So they don't, when I get kicked in the guts, they don't feel a kick in the guts. But I can talk to them about how I feel like mm. kicking the guts. Mm. Um, and so there's that sort of um, support support and counselling. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, it. Which is quite I important. love and, that. And don't think you don't need it. Like we all need We're social animals. We do need it. We do. And thank you for coming on and sharing that. So those listening, I think, will be certainly inspired today and hopefully learn some new things. Marshall Hughes from Parcel, thank you very much. We'll put a link to our Facebook page to get more passes, make some money, 10 bucks, help thank- people out. All those things. Be a shopper delivering to a shopper. Be a shopper delivering to a shopper. Parcel. Marshall Hughes, I wish you continued success and I look forward to our next health check on your business. I love it. Thank you very much. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Me, myself, I, Jonah, I'm a trading. I do like that song. I haven't heard that for a while. And that's all about personal branding. And that's a real key element to be uh, a part of this entrepreneur's toolkit that we're talking about today on the show. And our next guest is a brand strategist and founder of multi-award winning branding studio, WRD. Debbie O'Connor, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Now, let's get stuck into it. We're talking about the toolkit for entrepreneurs. We've talked today on the show about mindset and uh, regulatory processes and all different, uh, having the dream and things. And, and the brand side of it is absolutely key because it's so powerful. So tell us why a brand is more, uh, much more than just having a logo. That's a really good question because that's where a lot of people get stuck. They sort of think, well, I'm starting up a business um, or I'm getting myself out there. The first thing I need to do is get a logo. But in the end, apples don't sell computers. It is the brand behind Apple that makes people love and connect with it and want to buy the products. The Apple just tells you where you can buy it and who then owns that particular product. So we look at so much more behind the brand um, as to, you know, what does the brand stand for? Or in other cases, what does it stand against? Um, what is that brand promise? What are you going to do that's really going to connect you with your customer every single day that makes them want to do business with you rather than simply do transactions? Yes, that's yeah, great. A great answer. Thank you for that. Now, with a personal brand, and that's particularly relevant to entrepreneurs because uh, being an entrepreneur, the personal brand uh, becomes really important as opposed to the corporate brand because a lot of entrepreneurs are running their uh, their business either by their own name or they're pitching uh, for funds, and so that personal brand's a really key element to that. What are some tips for an entrepreneur to build a personal brand? 
Yeah, and look, I I actually have five tips that I always use when helping a client de- uh, develop their personal brand. So one of them is what we just touched on, is, is what do you stand for? What is that one thing that you absolutely want to become famous for? Because if you're trying to be all things to all people, um, you're just not going to be able to achieve what you, you're setting out to do. So figuring out what that one thing is, if someone were to say there is an expert in blah or you've got to speak to this person because of, what would that thing be that you want to be known for um, and absolutely be famous for? And yes, of course, there are going to be other areas of the services that you provide, but there needs to be that one super powerful thing. Um, So that's the first thing. The other thing is, if you're going to build a, a personal brand, you have to be authentic. And this is one thing where a lot of people think that they have to be something else or they might see how somebody else presents or how somebody talks or they write and they think, oh, I need to be like that. Well, no, you you don't. You need to be like you because that's what people are going to buy into. Your authenticity, the way you come about, um, the way you talk, how passionate you are about your topic, whatever that is, you really do need to be authentic about it because um, those people that love what you do are going to buy into that part of the piece. Great. And now that's the second one. You said you had five. Just quickly, what are the other three? Yeah, so the next one is connection. So you need to figure out how you best connect with people. Are you a motivating person where face-to-face like Tony Robbins where you can inspire thousands of people in in a conference environment? Or do you prefer a one-on-one connecting where like Marie Folio, she does her face-to-face on video? Or are you better, um, you know, in small group environments? Figure out the best way that you connect with people and work on that because that is one of your strengths. Right. Number four. Number four is you need to see yourself as a business. So um, you are no longer just a person. You're a commodity. You are a money-making machine. And you need to look at yourself in that light because if you simply see yourself as a person, you're going to take things far too personally. Um, When somebody criticizes you, and they will because if you do well, tall poppy syndrome, Yes. that they're going to try and cut you down to size. Mm. So if you see yourself as a business, you can overcome that so much more easily. Yeah, that's good. And number five. And the last one is you need to be a thought leader. So you need to write, you need to speak, you need to present, you need to constantly have yourself out there telling everybody what you are an expert in and become a thought leader in that area so that when people start going back to that famous piece, what do you want to be famous for, what do you stand for, mm. that you become that thought leader in the area. Oh, that's great advice. Now, just, uh, just to finish off, Debbie, what is sort of the m- number one branding mistake a lot of businesses make. Ah, oh, look, there's so I many. I know, there's so there, many. Yeah, there really are so many. Look, the first one I would go back to is um, when it comes to personal branding, I think the biggest mistake is that people don't see themselves as the brand, as the business. And so what they do is they still go onto their social media and they act like, you know, a mum or the adventurer or whatever they do in their personal life and they haven't properly aligned it with their business life. So, yes, they might be out partying and getting drunk and they're sharing all this stuff on social media, not realizing that it actually impacts 
their personal brand at the same time. So they really have to put some some um, constraints, I guess, around how they want to be perceived because in the end, your brand is your reputation. It and certainly so- is your reputation uh, and, it, and reputation's everything. Everything. Yeah. Debbie O'Connor, thank you so much for your time today. We'll put a link to our Facebook page if anyone wants to find out more about what you do in your wonderful world of, of branding and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Great to have you on the show today. As we were talking about Entrepreneur's Toolkit today and all the elements that you need in that toolkit, there's so much more this conversation and discussion can continue. It can better continue on our social media. The podcast will be up on the website very soon. So we hope you've learned something new today and feel inspired. And you can visit us on rwpfm.com.au. You can find us on social media everywhere. And in the meantime, we look forward to your company next Friday at 11am. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business.